the What I Watch Tonight show. Good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to Comic Casts from What I Watch Tonight. My name is Matt Hudson, and joining me is my most excellent co-host. Hello everyone, I am Jared Charles, Editor-in-Chief at the Borough Reviews. How on earth have you been since our last discussion? Good, good. It feels like just yesterday that we sat down and recorded that. I know, if anyone hasn't heard it, and if you haven't, go and listen to it. Uh, myself and Jared, we spoke last month and we, we dove straight into Batman Returns, which was a uh, a fun film, shall we say, to revisit. And uh, I know we kind of had a similar point of view, but we, we varied on other aspects of it. For sure. And it yeah, it's definitely one of those films. Again, you can go back and watch it. It's kind of fun. It kind of throws you off a little bit when you first watch it because it's not what you would expect. No, not from a Batman film anyway. So, as the title may suggest, this show focuses solely on the capes, the makeup, the spandex, the drama of comic book movies or superhero films. And each month, Jared and myself discuss a different movie from the decades of choice and we dive right into it. So, Jared, without any further, can you please reveal the movie we're going to be reviewing for this second episode? I would be glad to. So today we are going to be discussing a movie that defined the turn of a new century, and that is X-Men, directed by Brian Singer and starring Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, Anna Paquin, and Halle Berry from the year 2000. Three words. Are mutants dangerous? I'm Rogue. So what kind of a name is Rogue? What kind of a name is Wolverine? My name's Logan. I'd like you to meet Aurora Monroe, also called Storm. This is Scott Summers, also called Cyclops. The truth is that mutants are very real, and they are among us. We must know who they are, and above all, we must know what they can do. You'll be safe here from Magneto. What's a Magneto? A very powerful mutant who believes that a war is brewing between mutants and the rest of humanity. When they come out, does it hurt? Every time. You homo sapiens and your guns. Hey, hey, it's me. Prove it. You're a dick. Okay. You were attacked. My people brought you here for medical attention. I don't need medical attention. Yes, of course. You actually go outside in these things? What would you prefer? Yellow spandex? Never seen anything like this before. The war is still coming, Charles, and I intend to fight it by any means necessary. And I will always be there, old friend. You're absolutely right in, in saying that it redefined a new era. It essentially redefined the genre because before that, there has been a lot of films which came out, which hadn't been all that good. We had the Batman films of the late 80s and the early 90s, and 
then we had some other ones which <laughs> weren't particularly fantastic. <laughs> and, but X Men, it was a uh, looking back now is an inspired choice. But this film, I mean, it came out in two thousand, uh, sixteen years before, I believe, nineteen eighty four. This was being t- uh, touted as a film which could be made, I think, by Orion Pictures. So uh, sixteen years it took to even get this thing off the ground. Yes, and it's weird to think that, you know, you originally had James Cameron and Catherine Bigelow yes. attached to, you know, take the reins of, of the original X-Men. And uh, just seeing its transition into what it was and what the final product is, is something that's kind of touching to watch and read about. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to say of hindsight in how the two have gone, and Catherine Bigelow and James Cameron, when he's not uh, having a liquid lunch and talking rubbish. It's imagine a film... <laughs> With those two, because I think they were married at one point, to have a film made by those two with this kind of subject, I can't imagine how on earth it would have turned out. But that's uh, that's another story for later on, I imagine. But I mean, this thing rumbled on for ages. They're 1989, 1990s almost made uh, by the same studio which created Terminator 2 and Basic Instincts. So you may have had Wolverine doing a Sharon Stone type shot. Um <laughs> And uh, what's funny about that is that Bob Hoskins was going to play Wolverine, and I I love dear old Bob Hoskins, but uh, I can't imagine how he would have transitioned from something like Who Framed Roger Rabbit to the lunatic that is Wolverine. Right, right. And, you know, that that comic book adaptation of Wolverine, uh, for, for this movie in particular, was kind of tamed down from the comic books. So I could only imagine if it had actually been released under Orion Pictures what that would have looked like. Yeah, I, I find it fascinating. Like you say, when you go back to 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 see how these films started, the seeds that were sown, the the path they took, and how they eventually started, it I find it almost as interesting as the film itself sometimes. And just and this film is almost a perfect encapsulation of that because it went through so many different what ifs and near misses and almost coulda shoulda beens that we could have had a film, could have had Viggo Mortensen as Wolverine. Jim, Jim Caviezel as Cyclops, Mariah Carey as Storm, Natalie Portman as Rogue, Maria Bello as Jean Grey, and uh, the superb Christopher Lee as Magneto. So, what the the journey it took is fascinating, and how they got from A to B to Z. For sure, and yeah, there were several. I mean, first off, you know the the rights went to 20th Century Fox in 1994, mm-hmm. um, and then after that, it went through rewrites like no other again. And yeah, it, it, the rotating cast when they were first trying to you know nail down the casting, it's just so fun to look at some of the people that could have been in these roles and to think you know what if right? Because even the ones that you mentioned, there are plenty more where that came from. <laughs> uh, you know, you had uh, Terrence Stamp for Xavier, and then I, Michael Jackson even wanted in on wow. the role. Uh, so yeah, there were plenty of people that wanted to be in this movie. And and just to go back to that, Shaq was also one of those people. So it's just kind of fun to go down the list and kind of, you know, see see what could have been. Uh, look at just just from those names, I think we were blessed to get who we did. If that was the talent which was being lined up, nothing wrong with Terrence Stamp, by the way. But uh, Jacko and Shaq. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I thank God for um, for agencies and studios having something about them. Um, well. Wolverine, uh, Hugh Jackman, who took on the, the claws of Wolverine, and we all know him and love him as Logan, and of course he was back for last year's spectacular finale, but he wasn't even the first choice to play uh, Wolverine. 
not at all. And you know, that kind of, I always, I always think of what's to come in the future without Hugh Jackman in that, in that role, because it's kind of hard to see at this point, you know, anyone else taking on that role and it being as good or better than Hugh Jackman. It, I mean, it's, it's a tough order to follow. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, he's, he must have been counting his absolute lucky blessings because previously to X-Men, he'd been in a paperback hero with uh, Claude, the excellent Claudia Gavan. If you haven't seen that film, please just go and check out the front cover because pre-X-Men, it's hilarious. It's just, just, just go and look at Hugh Jackman on the front of that cover. And he was also in Erskineville Kings with Joe Edgerton, Joel Edgerton, sorry, a low-budget Aussie film. So he'd literally done, you know, a TV and next to nothing. So it's a proper Bruce Willis diehard type thing going on here. So Russell Crowe put him forward for it because he didn't want to do the film um, for fear of clashing with Gladiator and Maximus. But again, Russell Crowe as a Wolverine would have been, it would have been intense, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. And not to mention, uh, Jackman was actually cast as the film had already started filming. So that kind of, yep, yeah, that kind of, you know, threw a wrench into some of the things that they were planning, I'm sure. Yeah, you can't imagine anybody else playing him now. And again, like you say, some of the other people who were who were mentioned, including Jean-Claude Van Damme, you, it just, I've said it three times already, but hindsight, you can't imagine anybody else playing him. And I know we may have to get used to that in the future because I can't see 20th Century Fox or or Marvel or whoever whoever it goes to in the end not ever using the character of Wolverine or Logan again. I think they'd be best bet to get a quote unquote nobody or you know somebody you haven't heard of to play him because I don't think they can get a recognisable face to try and take over from Hugh Jackman. I think they should go back to how they started and have a you know a Hugh Jackman if you will play him someone who'd only, someone who'd only done a bit of this and a bit of that. Correct. And, and, you know, along with that, we get some of the best adaptations when when studios decide to do that. And I always look back to when Daniel Craig was cast as James Bond. You know, I mean, he had an established body of work, but no one knew of Daniel Craig Mm -hmm. until he stepped into that role. And now it's kind of hard to think that anyone else could fill those shoes. I mean, obviously, most of the time when you hear when we're talking about James Bond, you know, who's who's your favorite James Bond? A lot of the time, the answer is going to be Sean Connery. Yep. However, Moore, yeah. Daniel Craig or Roger Moore, Daniel Craig did something with that role um, where people just love him in that role. And it's, you know, I, I have a soft place in my heart for Pierce Brosnan. But when you when you get someone new in these roles, whatever the role may be, and they just knock it out of the park, it's a true it's a true hero story. I mean, honestly, yeah, I mean, just look at what Hugh Jackman's gone on to achieve and what he's been able to do with the talent he had and has obviously built upon. He's been in The Prestige, which is one of my favourite films. And then obviously late later on in his career and only last year, The Greatest Showman. Think of it what you will, but it's made a ton of money and it's become a it's become a massive, massive hit. And he's in Le, uh, Le, Les Mis and mm-hmm. other things which made a lot of money. So, But yeah, I... Oh, yeah, about Daniel Craig as well. He he himself seems to struggle to want to play Bond anymore. But and I'm so pleased, just off topic, that you said you had a soft spot for Pierce Brosnan because I had it in my mind that when he was on Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan nailed it. I thought he was fantastic in Goldeneye and in it obviously got a bit silly as it went on, but I loved what he did to start with. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, even you know the the final couple of films from him, I. 
I I don't think that those films are great by any means, but I do enjoy them still just because of Pierce Brosnan. So, yes, he has that typical English charm which I'm still trying to master. But in terms of talking <laughs> about films which we may or may not like, as is the case with these uh, podcast episodes, myself and Jared we don't discuss beforehand our thoughts or feelings about the film. So I just want to throw that out there now. So when we do get into talking about the film. As far as I'm aware, Jared could absolutely hate this film, and I may absolutely love it, and we could end up having an absolute barnstorming classic of an episode where we're trying to convince each other. So <laughs> I just want to throw that. But in terms of people liking the film, it made a fair bit of money at the box office. I think it's fair to say it's the eighth biggest opening of the year. I think it's the ninth, ninth biggest release of the year. Yep, it is. Um, and actually, you know, when we're talking about box office money, um, the numbers I have aren't even... Uh, I don't think that they're adjusted for inflation. And so I didn't actually look at those numbers, but I could imagine that it would be a decent amount of money. Yeah, I think it's about adjusted for inflation. Uh, without inflation, it made 296 million worldwide. So let's you know, 300 million, let's say. I believe yep. for adjusted for inflation, that's tapping on about 360 million worldwide, which for, for a franchise, which wasn't even a franchise, and it's almost it, something which is just, you know, a superhero film which had just been bought out of nowhere and considering what had come before and the few years before, I don't think that's a bad turnout at all. Oh, not at all. Um, even if you look at what it grossed domestically without inflation, $157 million just domestically here in the States, uh, that that's kind of a big deal for, for a band of superheroes that you know no one really knows unless you are an avid, you know, avid comic book reader. I mean, that's a pretty... That's a pretty tough act to follow. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head there because clearly they were aiming for people who weren't necessarily comic book fans. Obviously, they want to appeal to the hardcore. But in order to make any money, this film had to draw in the people who you know weren't invested in the comics, didn't spend their money on them, and just maybe thought that the trailers looked cool or you know the, the action may have looked pretty good. So they had to appeal to them. And I think the trailers did a good job. And clearly the the uh, return in the box office showed that they did a pretty fine job. Yeah, and across the board, I mean, critics uh, love this movie. I mean, as of right now on the tomato meter, you know, it's at an 81%. Wow. And then for the audience score, it's at 83 So, I mean, universally, people find this to be a really good movie and a really good starting point for the X-Men universe. Yeah, it's it still holds up to this day in terms of uh, the franchise because there's been what seven X Men movies or eleven if you include the Deadpool movies and Logan and what and whatnot now. So I think compared to those, it still holds up very well. Uh, obviously, Logan is probably going to be the touchstone for any Wolverine films to follow. I think. Yep, you you'll need someone as we discussed. You know, you can get someone new into that role, but you definitely have to bring your A game. Uh, you have to convince people, and and that'll take some time. But I do think that with everything going on, with you know Disney Fox merger and everything, or Comcast, yeah. they have a, yeah, they have a, they have a, or Comcast, right? Uh, they really have an opportunity to take the franchise in a new direction and lead with a different foot. And I'm not sure how they're going to do that if if either one of those deals goes through. Uh, however. I feel like this is their opportunity to bring someone new in and to usher in a new era of the X-Men. Yeah, um, 
do you do, do you worry that if they were to bring out a new iteration of the character, you'd have a Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram screaming uh, hashtag Not My Wolverine? Oh, most definitely. As with every other fan franchise that has done or dealt with recasting, you know, a main lead actor, it's going to happen no matter what. Uh, but as long as, like I said, as long as the person that they get for that role is 100 com- 100% committed to, you know, making a good movie, I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal. Nope, fully agree. It'll be a tough act to follow because Hugh Jackman managed to cover pretty much every every base that that character could have done. So when when the new guy will try to put his own stamp on it, it's going to be quite hard because Hugh Jackman covered so much with that character. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they do. And obviously, if this merger goes ahead, if they end up in the MCU, we may see a completely different version. But hey, we still have the Logan film from last year to watch if it all goes pear-shaped. So, um... yes. I think it's time. I'm going to mention again, I don't know what Jared thinks of the film. He doesn't know what I do. I don't know what bits he likes, if he likes any of it, or anything like that. So let's jump straight into into the film, and uh, we'll go from there. And hopefully we don't end up hanging up on each other during this. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think we will for this one. No, we are, we are civilised film fans on this podcast, and civilised only. So um, the film itself starts with, to me... A fairly grim, heavy opening subject, I found. Yes, it's totally different, um, I found, from the rest of the film. But it does establish why Magneto is the way he is. Yeah, it's when it opened, it, when I rewatched it, and I saw the rain coming down and the mud, and I thought, oh, this is, you know, it looks like a DC movie. It's all grey and <laughs> filtered. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. But then, then it, then it said like Germany, nineteen forty-four. I think it said. And I thought, are they at Auschwitz? And they were. And I thought, bloody hell! They're, a comic book film to kind of revitalise this genre is starting in Auschwitz, which is probably the most horrific of place to want to start any movie, comic book film or heavy drama. But um, it worked, thankfully. It could have gone horribly wrong in that first five minutes, um, just with the the subject matter. But it. It worked, it gave us an insight into the character of Magneto and just his power, or raw strength, to quote Snoke, at a very young age. So um, I thought it set the film up well. Uh, What about you? Do you think it was an effective setup? I do. I think that that was the right way to start this film. Because while it may be tonally different from the rest of the movie, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, the themes are consistent with what the movie is exploring, right? You have persecution, discrimination, unacceptance. And I think that speaks to, you know, the wider uh, point of the film. Yep. Um, And there's more to add to that later on when we talk about specific members of the cast. But we then jump forward to... The the not-too-distant future, as the film will have us know, so it doesn't tell us exactly when it's set. However, we're in in what seems like a Congress setting, there's lots of stuffy-looking politicians, and then we have the lovely Jean Grey addressing them, and basically they are discussing the Mutant Registration Act, which is where mutants will have to essentially be outed. Their, Their identities will be made public as they are seen by some some parties as a threat to the nation, because they are basically called weapons. Yes, weapons. Uh, <laughs> and as much as Jean, you know, actually tries to kind of 
take them off the course of using those terms, uh, it doesn't go the way she necessarily wants it to go. No, it absolutely doesn't. Um, Magneto and Charles Xavier are in are in attendance to watch it as well, and we get to find out straight away that whilst they have this strange friendship going on, we also know they are very much two guys with two different mindsets. So they play into that political spectrum so very well, and it was just fantastic to see Patrick Stewart and Serene McKellen, two fantastic British actors, if I can say. Just acting together in this particular scene when they're out in the hallway, it's just so mm-hmm. good to see those two titans just act off one one another. I, I really dug that. Yeah, and you get a sense for you know their connection, their former friendship, mm-hmm. if you will. You really do. Without them having to explain any of that in detail, you get that sense that yes, these people know each other, and also there's tension there. And yeah. you're not sure necessarily why there's tension there at this point, but there's tension. Yeah, and it's just all down to that very, very subtle and very good writing. And just the performances, to have those two... It also sends a statement as well that when you have actors of that calibre in your film and have them being shown off so early on, it's kind of laying down a marker to say that, you know, this is the standard we're aiming for now because all throughout they were fantastic um, but yeah, like you say, we don't know what's going on with them. There is a there is a tension, an unspoken tension, and it's played out so well. And immediately after that ten minutes, I'm in. Now I'm hooked in. I want to know what's going on with this mutinax. I want to know why these two guys are are at each other's throats. And then the film then powers on, uh, and we meet more people. Yes, we meet Rogue. Um, and essentially, when we meet Rogue, we we find that. Rogue has a quality that that's not really cemented yet. She doesn't know what it is. We don't know what it is. And so it's kind of interesting to start at that point and just discover her powers with her throughout the journey. Yes, and uh, if there's any young boys out there, don't try and kiss a girl in her bedroom because bad stuff will happen to you, as this film will tell you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she, so we meet Rogue. Um, she's a young teenage girl what my, I don't even want to hasten to guess at how old she's meant to be but she's young enough you know uh, late teens maybe she has a power her boyfriend decides to give her a peck and she <laughs> puts him into a coma because she cannot have that physical touch which she, uh, unbeknownst to her at the time until he started convulsing on the bed she now realises she has something majorly in her eyes wrong with her um, so she's she's run away she, we we meet her and we next see her in a dingy looking bar, um, after a, after a a, a a UFC type fighting competition was happening happening. Yes, and who other uh, you know, to fight people in a bar than Wolverine? And so they kind of hint at Wolverine, but what I love about this is they keep him in the shadows for a little bit, just to kind of tease. And I thought that that was really an effective way to get him involved in the story and it kind of aids to the relationship between rogue and wolverine and kind of her trepidation towards him yeah i also like that they introduced him as almost as like a normal well just a just kind of guy who goes to a bar just to fight they don't introduce him as being necessarily a a mutant he's just a very strong guy who fights other people you know what i mean he just and then like you say he's in the shadows and once he he looks like he's tired, but he's actually just 
having a cigarette and just letting the letting the fight roll over him. So I thought that was cool. And obviously we then very quickly find out that he has these adamantium claws because some of the other patrons very stupidly try to pick a fight with him. Yeah, they pick a fight with him and it goes south for them. <laughs> so with the themes of discrimination woven brilliantly throughout the whole script, we get this nice little moment where those patrons do attack Wolverine and when they do that, the bartender isn't necessarily focused on them attacking Wolverine, but rather Wolverine's claws that he has now shown. So it, it not only does it give you a sense for how regular people feel about mutants, um, because, you know, at the beginning of the film, we just kind of see how politicians view mutants. Now we're getting a glimpse of just everyday people, you know, a bartender working at a bar. How does he feel about mutants? And it's not well. So instead of focusing on and, and you know, kind of uh, attacking the people that were uh, the perpetrators of the situation, he focuses his attention towards Wolverine. And this is also the first time where Rogue learns of his powers. Yeah, you're right. It just shows how far down the scale the, the threat or rumour of mutants has gone from the very top to the men in suits to the guys running the bars in the in the back alleys and the, and the, and the forests and the cities. So he's, it, it shows what a th- threat these guys are seen as being. But, and when he gets his claws out, of course, it also piques Rogue's interest because she obviously realises, hold on, I can do strange stuff. This guy's got metal knives coming out of his hand, so I'm assuming he's kind of like me too. And mm-hmm. she runs off to... Well, she sneaks off with him, actually, because uh, she runs off to meet him, and the next thing you know, Wolverine's driven off, Logan... Um, we don't know where she's got to, but it turns out she's she's hitched a ride, uh, much to his annoyance. Yes, and so when he does find her, <laughs> he um, he tells her to get out, obviously, and and he leaves her on the side of the road, and he just carries on. But of course, we all know. Um, well, we know now, but at the time, you know, you were like, okay, Wolverine's kind of a cold dude, right? He uh, he likes being alone. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't like people, and yet he goes back for her because, again, he feels isolation because of his mutation. And obviously someone wants to be with him and wants to stick with him, and I think that kind of changes his mind about the whole situation. Yeah, it's a very quick uh, bit of character development, which, again, he's, we've only known this guy for five minutes, but we already know he's tough, he's not going to take any rubbish, but, he also, but he's also got something underneath that. He has a bit of a heart somewhere in that adamantium-fused skeleton of his. I also want to say those scenes in the snow look fantastic. Uh, when when he leaves her and drives mm-hmm. off, the visual just looks so good. And when I was... The first time I saw this, I think I was, what, 14 when it came out. Now, 18 years later, they are the scenes that still stand out to me the most. It's not what came after. It's those scenes in the snow. When he drops her off, he goes and then and then obviously stops to pick her up. And their their conversation in the car, they they look where she introduces herself, and for the first time you get to hear Wolverine call himself Logan. It's those scenes, and I'm I'm not sure why, but there's something about them. Definitely cinematography I liked, but uh, and then subsequently uh, there's more action in the snow because a a bad looking dude called Sabretooth suddenly jumps on and attacks Wolverine. And he's uh, thankfully saved by what we ne- what we later find out to be called the X Men. 
Yes, uh, and um, so Sabretooth, uh, I kind of want to, I kind of want to pause here to talk about Sabretooth for yeah. a minute. If there is any weak point to the movie, I really think it's the character of Sabretooth. Uh, for me, that whole thing just doesn't work. Uh, I don't know. What about you? But what element of him? Didn't you like or elements? Uh, it's not necessarily his physicality or anything. It's just the way that they handled the character. He he's very incompetent, and Magneto is such a brilliant guy, and he's so intelligent. And to pick, you know, one of your sidekicks, uh, and to pick Sabretooth specifically um, when he's shown signs of incompetence, I just don't understand why you would keep him around. Yeah, I can see that, absolutely. I mean, when, the first time we meet him, he looks like he's just going to just beat the living heck out of Wolverine. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, as the movie goes on, there he is this kind of a bumbling idiot, basically. You, you think somebody as wise and as powerful as Magneto could probably do slightly better with choosing his sidekicks. I can think of a few times when he really dropped the ball. But um, I've got some thoughts about a few members of the cast, and I think for... For discussion's sake, I'm going to leave them to to afterwards. So I'm going to leave that carrot dangling for everybody there. But um, I was actually expecting Liv Schreiber to turn up, and I know he played Sabretooth in later movies, but I was convinced that Sabretooth was going to be Liv Schreiber. Yeah, and I I do think that Liv Schreiber uh, adds another element to that role. Um, that's not just you know physicality. I, mm-hmm. I as an actor, Liv Schreiber is just. Uh, he's got this charm, but it's like a like a subtle kind of mysterious charm to him, and I feel like that is what kind of was missing here. Yeah, he's just a uh, uh, nothing against Tyler Maine, who portrayed Sabretooth in this film, but Liev Schreiber is a fantastic actor. He's the kind of guy who looks like he could take you out for dinner, really give you a nice evening, whilst also plotting to murder you with a little smile. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a he's a fantastically sort of coldly sinister, menacing, but yet charming actor. And yeah, compare again. Sorry, Mister Main, but comparing the two is kind of like comparing chalk and trees when you have somebody as good as Schreiber. Right, right. Uh, so I guess with that we can uh, kind of move on. Um, so the next portion of the film takes place in the uh, Xavier's mansion, and so we kind of get a sense of where these people are and and kind of what they're about. Yeah, it's the first time we really ever see this mansion. Uh, the, the comic book fans would be extremely well-versed in this, but for people like me who hadn't read them back in 2000, it was it was pretty cool seeing this sort of this one place where like-minded people went to study, to learn, to develop, and see these strange but wonderful characters come together. We meet we meet Cyclops, we meet Storm. Uh, Jean Grey, as we've already mentioned, uh, to name a few. So it's really awesome to see them come together. Wolverine and Cyclops, <laughs> they start off as essentially enemies, uh, which is and their and their chemistry throughout the film and their, for a lack of a better word, banter really helps the film uh, with, with its levity. But yeah, it we also finally get to see Charles Xavier behind a desk, and he. We see his power straight away when he's inside Wolverine's mind, but as far as he's concerned, he's just hearing voices and thinks he's going slightly mad. Right, and and to be with him, you know, like, take, for instance, if you hadn't, you know, known any of these characters, you would be just as confused as, as Logan was <laughs> as he's walking those hallways. 
And so it gives you a sense of what everyone's powers are, but it does it in a way that uh, adds to the story and isn't just a monologue explaining, hey, I can do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things I did notice is, unfortunately, in the medium which we do, we, we look at films with a, crit- a critiquing eye, not a negatively, but we, you know, we look for things which maybe others don't see. And one of the things I did notice was was that one one of these guys can, you know, shoot lasers from his eyes and the other one can control the weather, the other one can read minds. But none of it ever feels like a, a plot convenience. It always just feels like it feels natural and normal for the story. It doesn't just seem shoehorned in just to kind of, you know, play off at the end just to get, get as a get out of jail card. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So was there anything else that you wanted to talk about uh, at the expansion? Well, I guess the main thing is that Xavier's brought Wolverine in. He was rescued because he believes that Magneto is after him. Uh, Rogue was also brought in because she was there uh, after Sabretooth's attack. But Charles Xavier believes that Magneto is after Wolverine. They've run some tests on him when he was out cold and realises, as I mentioned, he has this uh, this metal uh, compound called adamantium, which is fused to a skeleton, which gives him... Pretty much makes him almost immortal, rather than getting his head chopped off. He can reheal himself, and it gives him the power to uh, have these claws from his fingers, uh, his hands, as we know. So he has taken an interest in him. We know that Magneto can can warp and play with metal, shall we say? Wolverine's got metal all through his spine and his body. So there's that interest as well. Well, if Magneto's after Wolverine, what is it he can do with him? Um, so that was one of the uh, a seed that was sown, which pays off to great effect later on in the film. I agree. And that's actually one of my favourite scenes, but we'll get to that. Yes, um, oh, I'm, I'm excited. It seems like we may enjoy something together at the end there. Well, after that, once we've been to the mansion, we we kind of get more back into the political scheme of things. Senator Kelly, he is the, the key um, politician who is against who wants the mutant, sorry, to have to come out. He believes them to be, you know, wild animals who could who, who could go into schools and become a become a menace, who can walk into walk through walls into banks and mind trick people into doing their dirty bidding. He is abducted by two of uh, Magneto's goons, Toad, played by the wonderful Ray Park, a.k.a. Darth Maul, or just Maul now, uh, and Mystique, who is a, who's a shapeshifter, a chameleon. Um, and he uh, he's ta- then taken to Magneto, who, let's just say, has his way with him. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely does. And for Senator Kelly, you know, he has such a fear of these of these mutants, and that really is shown by his performance there. And, you know, it kind of gives the sense that while we might view the mutants as, you know, just regular people, there are people that that don't and magneto you know can almost kind of convince you that uh you know senator kelly is doing the right thing yeah i um when i was watching the the political shenanigans to start with in the conversation i found myself agreeing with the gut with senator kelly because what you don't understand you're going to fear so and it's been as in history and u.s history and british history and all around the world Fear is used as a tactic, you know, against the public almost. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so seeding people, and they will do as you say. 
It's something which has been seen countless times. McCarthyism was the key one in the States with his little um, with his little suitcase of all the names in, which he never had. <laughs> the I thought that was a fabulous way to tie it all in and to have this guy who fears and we kind of think dislikes, hugely dislikes mutants. He's brought in front of Magneto and he himself is tested on. Magneto tests, generates a field of radiation, which probably should should kill Senator Kelly, but this is an experiment which doesn't necessarily go well, but he becomes a mutant. He becomes everything he's been fighting against, which I think was a, I thought that was a fabulous little uh, piece of writing. I do too. And, uh, and then, you know, you kind of get a sense, especially, you know, the after effects when we, when we get to there and we see what happened to him and kind of what's going on and how people are now looking at him. And as a character that we shouldn't like, you do feel bad for him. Yeah. It's well acted. You can see the fear on his face when he clearly still doesn't understand what's going on, but you know, something's something bad is about to happen. Uh, and we find out that he eventually does actually use his newfound abilities to escape. But um, before we get to that, you have quite a, sort of a fairly a fairly grim moment. I thought after that, Wolverine is struggling with himself. He has nightmares. He's having these visions of pretty much where he came from, how he came to be. We don't know in this film what happened to him. We just see kind of these sort of green filtered images of people with needles and he's in a he's submerged in water and he's permanent mark all over him he then he's rogue hears him and comes in to kind of try and console him or to try and calm him down and in what was at the time a fairly grim plot point he obviously wakes up and just puts his claws through her yeah and so um you know you kind of forget for a moment when that happens when he wakes up and when he stabs her you know, that she has, you know, a power. Um, and, and we don't necessarily know what the power is, again. However, uh, you think for a moment there that she's done for, right? She's she's gone, obviously. Mm-hmm. But remember, she we learn here that she can kind of use other people's powers, essentially, just by touch. And so she gains his ability to regenerate, and and then she's back, but at the cost of draining Logan almost to death. Yeah, I I'd forgotten that part happened, which is why I kind of took me slightly by surprise. And as it's happening, uh, maybe it's just me, but I wasn't thinking that she will just use her her mutant powers to drain Logan of his life force. I was thinking, like you did, like wow, they they're going to go there and they're going to kind of up these stakes. Um, and by and actually by having her almost kill Logan to sustain her, I didn't think it actually did anything to change the stakes. I think it actually just you know showed that they were willing to go there. But I wasn't thinking at the time that they were going, she was going to do that. I just remember thinking, wow, she they they've gone there. And they've killed off like in like almost like a psycho moment. They've killed off apparently essentially the main the female lead, the main but, focus um, of the film. Hang, yeah, yeah, but um, they switched it around quite nicely. And that's then used against her by who we think is Bobby Drake, which is, it looks like the guy who has a bit of a crush on on Rogue. And when I was 14, I did as well. But um, it's Sean Ashmore who plays Bobby Drake. Uh, oh, uh, oh, he was, I didn't like his performance. I thought he was kind of a atypical 90s 
kind of boyfriend type character. Oh yeah, I didn't like him in this film. Sorry, Mr. Ashmore. I'll put it down to the writing more than anything else, but <laughs> we believe it's him. He convinces Rogue to leave school. You know, he says, you know, to the Professor Xavier, he's furious that you would use your uh, mutant abilities against another mutant. People are scared of you. You've got to get the hell out of here, man. Um, we soon find out it isn't Bobby. It's in fact Mystique, the shapeshifter, has managed to infiltrate the the mansion and is now uh, sowing the seeds for Rogue to get out of the safety of the mansion. Yes, and um, Mystique is able to actually um, then, using you know the look of Bobby, infiltrate Cerebro and mm-hmm. and just completely mess it up. And and that leads to some repercussions later on. Yeah, it does. Um, I think if had X Men been released this year and in the current climate we live in, and not and not people like Miss myself and you, because we do have brain cells, I think if the film would be released now, people would be saying, "Well, hold on, how did she get in? The, why why didn't we see her get into the mansion? How was she? How how come she just turned up? Whereas you don't always need to be told how people get there." Just the fact that she got there is, you know, that's the mystery is how did she get there? But I feel that now in today's kind of way of looking at films, that would have been used as a plot hole, which I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. I'm I'm with the camp uh, that, you know, feels like not everything needs to be explained all the time, which is, you know, why there was some concern about going and doing a Han Solo spinoff movie. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, yeah, not everything needs to be explained. And this propelled the story forward, and that was the purpose. Yeah, and it just showed that Mystique, unlike Sabretooth, can get the job done. She can infiltrate this mansion. We don't know how. So there is already the the Mystique, if you will, the mystery of she must be something special to be able to get into this establishment in the first place. But she takes the persona of Bobby Drake, and Rogue's gone now. She, she's left... Wolverine is tipped off and is he's told to stay out of it, basically. Cyclops and Storm will go and get her. She's at, Professor Xavier's found her. She's at a train station. She's heading out of town. We find out that Cyclops has a awesome motorcycle which goes from naught to about 500 at the blink of an eye. <laughs> and Wolverine catches up to her at the train station, doesn't he? Yes, he catches up to her and they have this nice little dialogue moment. Uh, where essentially Logan's telling her, you know, you, you don't need to be afraid. Like, I'm here for you. And that really just goes to show you that the character of Logan isn't this, you know, all-tough, 100% baddie, that he does have a heart, again. Um, and it seems like there's only this one person at the moment that's able to kind of draw that out of him. Yeah, and it didn't, it didn't feel forced. It just gave another layer to... To the character that he's not just a one-note, angry, you know, depressed kind of emo hero. He's, you know, he's got layers to him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that conversation was, it was well handled. Unfortunately, it was rudely interrupted by uh, Mr. Magneto tearing the train to pieces. Yes, and this is where uh, my favourite scene is, actually, my favourite shot. And this comes, you know, after he rips that train you know, kind of apart, he kind of just floats ever so gently into the train. And that that sequence is so haunting almost uh, that, that you are scared of Magneto and, and what he can do. 
Yeah, I, I read somewhere also that Hugh Jackman wasn't prepared for the set to actually fully come apart like that. He was just told that Magneto was going to burst onto the train, and when when he was obviously when he's on set and the and and the shots rolling, and suddenly the the set starts to come apart around him and shake and get blown to pieces. The 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 look of sort of confusion and fear on his face is genuine because he wasn't expecting anything of that level to happen. So um, I thought that was another great little moment but yeah like you say this kind of as Heath Ledger would later say this agent of chaos almost comes floating in so serenely like an angel but we know that he's a complete ass. he's not a good guy <laughs> and he uses in what what I thought was the coolest part of the film which I thought was a badass part of the film because he, they, he captured Rogue we find out he's not after Wolverine at all mm-hmm. Professor Xavier was wrong. He's been, you know, he's been hoodwinked. They're after Rogue because of her powers. They they capture her. They leave the train station, and outside waiting for them is a convoy of armed police. And they, he, you know, put your hands up. He lifts up the police cars, he, cop cars. Sorry, guys. Launches them back down. Takes the policeman's gun away from the cop cops' guns away from them, and then slowly turns them back on themselves. And they're now far, their guns are far, uh, are pointed at them. I thought that was such a fantastic sh- uh, scene. It showed how powerful he was. Visually, it looked incredible. And it's just a bloody good bit of storytelling. Yes, and the special effects were really good. You know, they were totally believable for that. Yeah. And it kind of, it sets up for something for, for a moment later on in the film. And they're playing a game of chess. You know, Charles Xavier and Magneto are playing a game of chess. What will you do? How far will you go to prove your point? And just, again, the tension between them two, and and let me be clear, they weren't even on screen together mm-hmm. for for this scene. They didn't see each other. And so to have that kind of connection without them actually being in the same place, I mean, they're in the same place, but they can't see each other. It's just so tense, and and you do think for a moment that that Charles is just going to let him take out all these police officers. Yeah, did did you did you think like I did that when he turned the gun on that one police officer and pulled the trigger that he just shot him in the head? Oh yeah, I totally believe that. Yeah, I bought that, and that's and again I thought they're they're really bringing it with the kind of I would say violent. Well, it is violent, isn't it? With the with the stakes here, but but just having it. Touching his forehead and just spinning around in slow motion was such a great shot, and the sort of having it very slowly start to bore into his head was actually probably even more scary than having it just pound him straight in the head. But you do think you do actually believe that Xavier is going to just risk all of these people's lives, but uh, he obviously sees the well, I say the error of his ways. He sees he sees another path, and they come. They, he let he he lets him go. That's when we kind of move on to the probably what we'd call the third act of the film i think yeah so we learn here that um magneto's little experiment isn't actually working the way he wants it to senator kelly actually dissolves and dies <laughs> i laugh at the way you say that not be- not because he died well yeah and so like initially you're thinking that senator kelly it doesn't matter. It has no effect. But then you put the pieces together that, oh, he's going to use Rogue in that machine to, you know, essentially take out all the humans. 
And uh, I think that that was really an, an effective way, especially after you've gotten that little bit and piece with Senator Kelly, mm-hmm. um, where we do feel bad for him. We do sympathize with that character to some extent. And for him to just die, and he has that nice little moment uh, with Storm where, you know, he's telling her uh, you have less, you know, one less person to worry about, essentially. Yeah, you're right. And the before he does before he does die, so, uh, Charles Xavier's read his mind and he's got, and he's seen what has happened to him and and the strain and the toll that it took on Magneto to actually use the radiation to mutate Senator Kelly. So that's how they're able to, you know, to deduce that they're gonna use Rogue's pack Rogue's powers because well, there's a the very big summit of all the world leaders are meeting on Ellis Island to discuss you know, political bits and bobs, but also, of course, the Mutant Registration Act. So they've worked out very quickly that the two are linked and that Magneto intends to use what he's done to Kelly on all of these world leaders and make them part of the Brotherhood, make them what they see, they sought to, you know, destroy, which, again, is a it's a, it's a cool little uh, storytelling device. But, but, yes, you thought maybe Senator Kelly would have a larger role to play and in a strange way, in a liquid form, he, he did. Yeah, how did you feel about the actual visual effects for that scene when he just kind of turns to mush? There's, there was a bit in the in the middle of his transformation which I didn't like the look of. I thought it started okay, and it ended mm-hmm. well with the literal sort of just, just explosion almost of water, but the mm-hmm. bit where he kind of started to swell up, it looked a bit like a scene from Casper the Friendly Ghost or something. I didn't really like the way that looked. How about you? Yeah, I agree with you, which is why I asked. I was just seeing if you picked up on that too. Um, and, and, you know, for the rest of the the rest of the film does actually a really good job at the visual effects. But there are parts, you know, where you can tell that the film was made in, in the year 2000. However, it's, you know, use of visual effects can sometimes uh, actually just be better than some of the films that we've got recently. Yeah, I didn't actually have a problem with particularly many of the effects in in the film, which is which is telling for a film which is almost two, which oh no, which is almost two decades old. Just let that sink in, everybody. It's almost two decades old, but it didn't look dated. the 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 use of green screen wasn't. I mean, I I like I like these three films, but the Star Wars prequels use green screen, and at times it was glaringly bad. Whereas this film came out kind of sandwiched in between the three, uh, the one and two. And it looked very good, I thought, the, the the visual effects, apart from when he turned into the human blob and then just dissolved into water. But for the most part, I thought they held, they still hold up very well, for the most part. I would agree. Something, something which didn't hold up was Charles Xavier, because like you mentioned, the Cerebro was uh, sabotaged by Mystique and he then tries to use it and falls into a coma. Which is obviously sucks to be him, but Jean Grey later uh, then uses it because she she's she's fixed it, but she's never used it before, and that's a line which is mentioned earlier in the film by Wolverine. He says, you know, mm-hmm. have you ever used this? And she says, no, because it, it it without the control that's needed, it could be very you know potentially extremely dangerous. So that was a, that was a line which was set up earlier, which had a payoff in the end, uh, and she uses Cerebro, which can locate any mutant anywhere in the world with the right mind control they find her um happily in the statue of liberty so thankfully it's one of the landmarks which is easy to find mhm 
Um, yeah, and, and for that, it transitions nicely into the last, you know, kind of big battle of the movie. Yes, um, I have mentioned before that comic book films, maybe it's the more recent ones, they kind of tend to fall into this sort of CGI orgy of uh, like a mess almost. Some of them do. They've just become... I loved Wonder Woman. I didn't like the end because it was just all-out computer-generated effects which didn't look particularly very good. Um, and I know I'm not the only one to think that. It's not me. That's not a new thing. Mm-hmm. However, I mention that solely because this film didn't particularly go that route. I know there was obviously some moments, but a lot of the action in these set pieces, you could tell that they were guys on harnesses and they were literally were being thrown around. Hugh Jackman got one of his testicles caught in the harness, actually, <laughs> off on the Statue of Liberty after he was performing a stunt. So it was, he will tell you it was all very real at the time, but... Uh, obviously, it wasn't a real statue of Statue of Liberty, but it was still a very big set. Um, so, yeah, I, I I liked the third act for the fact that it didn't just explode into this all-out CGI fest. Um, so, we are at the Statue of Liberty. What did you think about how we got there and what followed? Um, well, first off, uh, when they're actually getting ready to go to the Statue of Liberty, you have that whole comment about, you know they're getting into suits and, you know, their black leather suits. And you have that whole comment uh, about essentially what would you rather have us wear? You know, Logan makes a comment kind of you making out, fun of the suits. You guys go out in this? Right. Yeah. You guys go out in this and he's kind of making fun of those suits. And they're like, well, what do you want us to wear? Yellow spandex. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's an obvious callback to the comics. And so that that was definitely a payoff line just, you know, in itself. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's one of the there's another line shortly after which is uh, between Cyclops and Wolverine which is just fantastic and kind of builds up that wonderful love-hate relationship between them but I love that line because it would have looked utterly ridiculous having Wolverine in yellow and blue tight spandex running Mm -hmm. around slashing people up with the horned hair so I'm so glad that they First, he didn't use that and kind of had him in more of a jeans and leather jacket kind of dude. But I'm also glad that they threw it in there as a little reference just to just to nod to the fans. We haven't forgotten. We did, we did think about it. However, it would have looked horrendous. Unless you think it would have looked good. I'd, I actually prefer the black leather over <laughs> the blue gold outfits. Yeah, I, I would have. I'm, I like how they kind of referenced it in most other... Uh, Wolverine films after that but they never went full full hog and actually put him in it even for a joke so I'm glad they never actually did it but that was a that was a fantastic line leading up to when they are in their kind of ex-stealth type bomber type uh, uh, jet type thing they managed to infiltrate the the Statue of Liberty of course Magneto has sensed them coming and you know we've got Sabretooth is there to save today surely surely he's going to help yeah, Sabretooth, again, uh, this just shows how, like, incompetent Sabretooth is. Because, I mean, really, he can get, you know, a few punches in, he can do a few things. But overall, he just cannot defeat hardly any of them. You know, he, uh, he you know, you had the whole train sequence where he was fighting Storm for the majority of it. Obviously, Storm got out of that just, uh, just fine. And, you know, they kind of make another comment because, really he should be going after Wolverine and instead he's kind of focusing on storm a little bit because mm-hmm. he has this weird kind of obsession with storm. And so again, uh, I think that mystique would have been a better use 
Um, you know, if they would have given her a little bit more to do as far as fighting goes. I mean, she has the whole part, you know, where she's fighting Wolverine as Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And that was super effective um, just to look at, you know, visually. And, you know, when the other characters are trying to kind of determine, you know, who's who, uh, that kind of built tension in itself there. But other than that, Sabretooth just, I don't know, it just didn't work for me. Yeah, he. this is when, as you said quite correctly, he just kind of shows himself up as a stock goon. To just there for a bit of muscle, but really doesn't do anything else. It's funny, because I, I remember him having a greater role from when I, when I first saw it. This is a while ago now, obviously. I remember him being kind of a lot tougher and a lot more solid. And re, uh, re-watching it for the benefit of this pod, I realised that, as you say, he's just a goon. Uh, Toad has slightly more to do and he's slightly more effective because at least he manages to actually trouble the trouble the, the good guys and uh, Ray Park gets to show off his athleticism. He also gets to talk for once. It's a, I, I think this is the first film where Ray Park gets to act on screen and talk in his own voice because obviously he was dubbed for Darth Maul. So um, that was quite cool to see. Um, good old Ray Park. And I know they changed the character of Toad because he wasn't a martial artist in the comic. I do know that. Um, I can't remember what he was, but he was changed to kind of play into what Ray does best, which is that kind of martial arts. Um, but like you mentioned about Mystique, when she when she becomes Logan, that is that's a great little fight, and the moments between them when you're trying to work out who's who, and when she becomes Storm, which again we don't know she's Storm at the time, and mm-hmm. Wolverine turns around and and stabs Storm. We are then trying to work out. Well, hold on. Is, <laughs> it, it, has she taken over Wolverine? And is Storm now going to die? Or is Storm Mr. Whatever? And it turns out that Storm is Mystique and Wolverine. Well, got got. He guessed correctly, I guess. But I thought that was another cool a cool moment to kind of have everybody on the edge of their seat for that kind of five ten seconds when you're work, trying to work out what's just happened. Uh, and then we get to another cool line between Cyclops and Wolverine. Wolverine comes through the door. Cyclops and Jean Grey are ready to blast him. He kind of says, no, it's me, it's me. And Cyclops says, prove it. And Wolverine just just <laughs> dead, deadpans, you're a dick. He's like, okay, yeah, that's you. Um, and it's just little things like that which just cement their love-hate relationship. And it's just a fun mm-hmm. line as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's great interplay between those two throughout the entire movie. Uh, I think it's actually one of my favorite things about the movie that they're able to have fun with it still. Yeah. I mean, there's a great level of tension, but they are still able to kind of interweave that comedy. And as far as, you know, other comic book films go, this was, I mean, I think this was the start of how we see comic books today, you know, um, mm-hmm. adapted yeah. to screen. I fully agree. And you mentioned tension there. Do you think that the tension would is there or was there because this was the start? Had this film come out in 2018, would the tension have still been there? Because obviously we've seen decades worth of comic book movies come and go, and some of them follow a sort of similar formula. But obviously this was the start and jump-off point. So do you think that kind of helped the film in with the level of tension and stakes, knowing that people may not be able to tell straight away what, what's going to happen? Yes, uh, the the level of unpredictability in here is what works so well. Yeah. You know, I was kind of browsing some of the you know user ratings and uh, critic comments and everything like that, and a lot of the words used were unpredictable, 
thrilling, exciting, didn't know where it was going to go. And so that's really what I think was the main stake in the film was the fact that you had no idea unless you were a comic book fan. And even then they did some things in here. You know, you mentioned that whole moment with, with Logan and storm when Wolverine turns around and stabs storm. I actually forgot about that. (laughs) So watching that again, I was like, wait, what? I don't, I don't remember this (laughs) happening. Uh, but again, you know, I could only imagine seeing it for the first time and seeing kind of this ensemble cast for the first time on screen like this, how, how exciting that would have been. But I don't know if it would have worked as well today um, if you had the same, you know, copy-paste film come out today. Yeah, I mean, there are, so, there are superhero comic book films which come out recently which do have that kind of unpredictability or that gut punch. Just, um, obviously, Infinity War, whatever people might think about what's going to come next, the film itself was just packed full of them. And some of the, some of the DC films, some of the, the, the other MCU films and the... Um, oh, and Logan, it's uh, Logan. The film, it's, uh, the lo- <laughs> the standalone film, Logan, or the follow up, whatever you want to call it, finale. They've all had moments of unpredictability, but they're also some which kind of just follow the, as you say, copy paste formula. So I think coming out being the first did help it. Um, so going back onto that, into that, onto that finale, we already know that Magneto wants to harness Rogue's powers. It's because he doesn't want to die for the cause. He's not going to martyr himself. He's going to, you know, this is this is Magneto. He's going to get a young girl. He's going to kill her for the to to, to save the world, as he says. But um, that doesn't go to plan because the X Men aren't going to give up. Sabretooth was bloody awful. Toad has been blown away by Storm, and uh, Wolverine has managed to get, with the help of Cyclops and Jean Grey and Storm, sorry, has managed to get to the machine where Rogue is kept. And he then has that final showdown with Magneto. Jared, did you like it? I did like it. I think it worked for me. Uh, I think it was a little... I think it was over too fast is is my main issue with it. Mm. I just felt like we got to this moment. You know, we had a lot of buildup to the tension. And then it kind of just gets, you know, blown away. And it's not even that Wolverine was the one yeah literally uh but it's not even that Wolverine was the one necessarily to you know deliver the final blow to Magneto it was actually Cyclops mm-hmm. and so while the film does place a lot of focus on Logan as a character i don't think um i like the fact that they're just giving these other you know pivotal moments to other characters necessarily that's a very that's an interesting thought cuz i hadn't seen it like that because I sometimes see it on the flip side that they're allowing other members of the uh, the gang to have their moment to shine. Um, so that's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about it like that. Um, I suppose if, if you reevaluate it, then yeah, you fully expect Wolverine to be the guy to go up there and deliver. He does deliver mm-hmm. the, the the final blow, but he's he doesn't manipulate it. He's as far as we're concerned, he's about to get his his skeleton pulled out by Magneto. But right. yeah, like I say, Cyclops manages to get the the blast off to distract him. Wolverine cuts through the the uh, rotating mechanism and uh, saves Rogue. But that's an interesting way of looking at it. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, and you know, again, I think that that's what the movie does so well is that unpredictability. You know, you thought that mm-hmm. you know Logan was going to be the one, Wolverine was going to be the one to take down Magneto, and it ended up not being that way. And so, like, I can see where. 
that is actually exciting and it's something new, you know, to do in these comic book movies. But for me, I just feel like Logan, Logan in the film in its entirety doesn't get to do really all that much. Um, but I understand as they're kind of building him as a character, you know, he's becoming an X-Men. He's not an X-Men yet. And so to that regard, I do find it effective. Yeah, if had this film been a standalone film, let's just say the film didn't make that much money and they didn't think of, they didn't bother making any follow-up films, do you think the character of Wolverine would have been portrayed well if this had been the only film he'd ever been in? Um, Probably not. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, made Logan so effective as a film was seeing the growth of the character. Mm-hmm. And so if this was the only film that Wolverine was actually in, we wouldn't see that. It wouldn't be nearly as effective. Yeah, it's true. He gets a he gets a good arc in this film and yeah, when you go back and rewatch it, it's I guess you you've probably still got the film Logan etched on your mind when he's basically just serving up false left, right and centre. Whereas in this one he obviously it's not this this is an an R rated film, it's a I guess it would be a PG thirteen or a twelve over here in the UK. So he can't do that, but he doesn't. He doesn't really have. He gets. He gets beat. He gets beaten up by Sabretooth and saved. Um, he obviously wins the cage fights against the drunkards, and then he has to fight with Mystique, which is cool. But Magneto kind of has his number because of his ability to manipulate metal. So yeah, like you're right. He doesn't really get an awful, awful lot to kind of show just how awesome he is with his ability. We see that he's. A tough guy with a cart of gold. We know that he likes fast motorbikes and he can do some cool stuff, but yeah, we don't really get to see it all that much. Yeah, and again, you know that that may be uh, what makes all the movies after it so effective is the fact that yeah, he wasn't he didn't just start off as this kind of champion superhero. You know, he did make mistakes. He didn't get to do all that he wanted to do, and I think that plays to the larger you know outcome of what happened in say Logan. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I couldn't help but think of Logan the movie as I was watching this, and I know that the X Men has got let's be let's be tactful and say a very patchy take on continuity or canon, if you will, because the films kind of flip flop between you know what's come before and what you know they don't really have they they have got no kind of path going through them or alternate timelines, whatever you want them to believe they are. But I couldn't help but think of the the, the final film Logan. When I was watching this first film, um, X Men, especially in the moments between Xavier and and Logan himself, but on as we just mentioned, then it is it's Wolverine delivers the final blow, but he isn't the one to kind of set it up. It's Cyclops, but so he saved Rogue. We think she's a goner. He tries to he touches her. She's not coming back to life, and then obviously she does, um, and she basically just annihilates Wolverine's energy and puts him in a coma. Uh, so he and Xavier get to share a ward because they're both in comas. Um, we find that Mystique, she got away, and she's she's impersonating Senator Kelly. So we know he's dead, but the wider world now thinks he's still alive and still still kicking. It, but it, it it's actually Mystique, which uh, is that kind of setup for the subsequent films to come. Yep, and the subsequent film, I would argue, um, X Two 
uh, I'm talking about X2. Yeah. Specifically, X2 yeah, is probably out of this initial three, trilogy that um, we got, probably scenes. the strongest X2, of I remember, the three films. Yeah, really liking that because it delves right into Wolverine. Uh, I like that film a lot, and um, hopefully, maybe you get to revisit it again soon. But um, yeah, it, 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 it so succeeds for that like, this isn't intended to be a standalone film. There was more to come, uh, as we found out. There was an awful lot more to come. But before we get to the end, Charles Xavier originally promised Wolverine if he helps them, or sorry, if 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 he stays behind, and can see what Xavier can do for him, he will give him some breadcrumbs to follow to kind of find out his origin. Where where did he come from? How did he become who he is? Which is, as he mentioned, a direct setup for X two, and we then see Magneto. He's in prison. Uh, it's entire it's entirely plastic prison which is a pretty cool gimmick. Uh, Xavier's there. They're playing chess. These guys have a strange relationship because if they're not trying to... If they're not in each other's minds or not trying to blast each other apart or having warring factions, they're playing chess and having a very, very tense relationship. Yes, um, then that that is why the relationship between those two characters works so well because you know if they did just go head to head you don't necessarily know who would win that exactly i mean they're both so intelligent and and they're both competent leaders you know even if even if magneto isn't the best person he's still a competent leader he's still almost you know uh, carried out his full plan and so it just goes to show you how smart these two are and i think one of the things I like about the the newer X-Men movies is they kind of establish that relationship a little bit more and, and you kind of see where they come from. And I think going back and revisiting this movie after seeing those movies makes the ending of X-Men almost more effective. Yeah, absolutely. Cause Magneto basically tells Xavier he will escape and he's going to continue fighting. And Xavier's saying, you know, well, Good luck, good luck with that, because I'm still going to be here fighting the good fight. So they are. It's, it's, it's a strange relationship where they clearly have some kind of unsaid respect for each other, but they are absolutely on opposite sides. And fun fact is, neither of them could play chess in real mm-hmm. life, so they had to have somebody actually come to teach them how to play chess, which is quite fun. So, which is amazes it amazes me because they seem like the type of people that would have played chess before filming this. They right. do. Chess is a fairly popular, I say, sport game in England. Or it has been anyway, and it's a, uh, yeah, you would have thought that two 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 gentlemen of their stature would be able to play uh, play the game. Yeah, yeah, it, it surprised me when I read that piece of trivia that they actually hadn't. Um, you know, there's a lot of things behind the scenes when we're talking about this movie that you know you wouldn't have even expected. So. They had to move around a lot of the shooting schedule for like Ian McKellen because he was uh, actually filming Lord of the Rings at the time, and he kind of wanted to do both. Uh, and what there's such different characters, uh, what he plays in Lord of the Rings compared to what he plays in X-Men. And I think that's why his performance in both of them are so good is because they mirror each other. Uh, they're, you know, they're opposites. And I think he was really able to play out, you know, the stronger aspects of each character because of that. Ian McKellen was awesome in this film. I really bought him as a bad guy. I thought he was badass in this film. He really had that down to a T that he wasn't 
well, he did, well, I say he didn't show any acts of violence. He did want to mutate half of New, almost all of New York, but he was a you know he's just just his expressions and his fantastic voice and just the way he put himself across was just dribbling with sinister intentions. I thought he was fantastic, and I like the fact that they managed to incorporate. They they you know they wanted him that much, and they respected him as an actor and his talent. That they moved scheduling so he could do his scenes at a certain time and then fly over to to New Zealand to be in, you know, this exceedingly uh, successful franchise, Lord of the Rings. But uh, yeah, Ian McKellen, I thought, was fantastic. And I, I read a quote somewhere from him that, because um, Ian, Ian McKellen is an openly gay man, and he responded to the uh, allegory of the mutants, that they are outsiders, disenfranchised, mm-hmm. alone, uh, you know, forced to be on the outside looking in because society wouldn't accept them. And let's face it, not everybody's still on that train now. But, uh, you know, he, he he kind of bought into that side of it and kind of bought his own experiences, which maybe kind of helped shape the character and how why he was so uh, effective as well. So I found that to be an interesting fact. And uh, good on you, Syrian. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again... This movie, I know we kind of touched on this last time when we were talking about Batman Returns. It holds up extremely well as far as, you know, what it's thematically covering. Uh, Batman Returns, you know, was covering, I mean, a lot of the relevant stuff in there was, you know, how corporations kind of rule the people and it's not actually a democracy. And, you know, uh, they have a bigger hand to play than, you know, normal folk do. And this movie speaks to discrimination. You know, we're still dealing with these things, you know, within whether you're talking about the LGBT community, whether you're talking about, you know, race or ethnicity, it's still really relevant. And I feel like that's why this movie holds up so well. Yeah. And it's, uh, let's, let's be real as well. It's also quite a shame that this film holds up for that, for those, for those reasons, because mm-hmm. uh, 18 years later, you'd like to think people could, you know, move with the times and just accept that we're all human. <laughs> you know, we're, we're all the same, but sadly not. Um, that's another story for another podcast. However, yeah, the film holds up visually. It holds up thematically. It holds up as well. I, the only thing that doesn't look, it does look strange. Just, how young Patrick Stewart looks. <laughs> he looks unnervingly young in this film. Yeah, um, compared to seeing Logan recently. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, he looks good for his age, though. But, yeah, you, you, you're spot on. It does hold up well in so many aspects of it. So I guess uh, the the key question in terms of what we haven't really gone into too much is the performances. Do, for you, do the performances hold up? Or, other than Sabretooth... Were there some you found a bit iffy? Uh, so Anna Paquin, I I appreciate her role in the movie, I really do. But Rogue, I don't know if it was the writing or if it was the direction that Brian Singer kind of gave her. But she almost felt a little too whiny to me, and I don't want to make that sound like that's a bad thing, like that's a bad quality to have in in a character. Uh, but it just kind of made some of her moments like cringy. And I don't know if you felt the same. Uh, yeah, you took the words or the character out of my mouth because as I was watching it, I, you know, I wasn't overly impressed by her. And I think, as I said, as a fourteen-year-old boy, I was just too busy looking at her right. than, than kind of watching what she's doing. But now I was watching her, and I like Anna Paquin. I think she's a she's a good actress. She's you know, she's been in some very good things. She was in Trick or Treat, which I which I love. 
Mm-hmm. And she's been in she's been in some good things, but in this film, yeah, it, it, there were I think maybe just because the other actors maybe were just at the time, you know, more see oh, maybe not even Hugh Jackman, but majority of the cast were maybe more seasoned, more developed in their ways. They just came across better, but at times she she did seem kind of out of place or dare I say trying too hard. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I might disagree with you on that. I don't think that she was necessarily trying too hard. I, mm-hmm. I read it as more of, she didn't know exactly what to do. Like she wasn't given the right direction on what to do. It, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. So while I love films, how we both see the same character and, or the same actress and see two different interpretations. It could be down to that because I mean, her character wasn't really given Compared to some of the other arcs, she wasn't really given an uh, some. I don't think a great arc necessarily. She, you know, didn't really d- dive too deep into. Her. We found out she couldn't be touched, and then Magneto wanted her for her powers. Whereas Wolverine had a, you know, he he had a lot more development going on. And as she was kind of like the the MacGuffin, the the central part of the film, mm-hmm. um, you would have thought she would have had more development. But there were scenes where I thought that maybe she was for me. It was a bit hammy, like the moment when uh, Wolf, she's in the car with Wolverine, the truck, sorry, at the beginning, and she asks for some food. And one of my pet peeves in life, and I've mentioned this before, is I absolutely hate when I can hear people eating. And mm. she is chomping on that food with so much gusto, and she's really going at it. And it, I was getting wound up listening, thinking, please close your mouth when you eat. But she, I think moments like that where she's kind of giving it a bit too much. And there was um, even the moment when she goes to kiss her boyfriend mm, yes it was it was a bit too kind of um naive innocency for me and i i you know it, it could have been better i think but yeah anna paquin i i still like you anna but in this film i thought there were better people within the film uh was there anybody else because i yeah anna paquin was top of my list other than the dude who played bobby sean ashmore yes yeah yeah, Sean Ashmore, I think he got he got better as the series went on. I think Sean Absolutely. Ashmore is just, I don't know, he's kind of a one-note actor for me. I mean, he's good at the roles that he does get. Like, I liked him in the following, you know, with Kevin Bacon. I don't know if you saw that at all. Uh, I have, yes, I have, yep. I thought he was, I thought he was decent there. Um, so I don't think it was necessarily him. Uh, Halle Berry was kind of dull for me. I wanted more from Storm, but I think it's just, I don't think it's her performance. I think it's, I wanted more of the character. Mm-hmm. And uh, other than that, I mean, yeah, Sabretooth, uh, Rogue, <laughs> those are kind of my ones, my go-tos. Yeah, I'm not going to work. I thought uh, Famke Janssen was, she was very good. She was decent, very decent. Sorry, Jean Grey. Obviously, Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. I say obviously, but at the time, there was no obviously because this is this was their, their first performances in these roles, but... They were they still hold up and they're just marvelous actors anyway. So kind of have to expect that they're going to be good. But even with the material they were given, the kind of like the far out superhero uh, stuff they were asked to do, they nailed it. I thought, and they really brought a sort of uh, gravitas to their roles. James Marsden was uh, was decent with what he was given as Cyclops. He's more than just a very handsome face. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray Park I thought was good as Toad. He had some he had some cool fight scenes. Um, he got he got a bit to do, but again he was a kind of a very secondary character. Yeah. Rebecca Romine Stamos, or just Rebecca Romine. What I liked about her character, or her, or how they handled Mystique, was I don't think they overtly sexualized her, even though she was clearly, 
you know, not wearing anything. There wasn't any kind of gratuitous shots of her or any 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 kind of like leering camera angles. I thought, and I noticed that this time around, and I thought that was well handled because there have been films recently, Justice League, which have <laughs> had those kind of things, which you kind of think, come on, you know, pander to your audience, but we you know we're not all 12. Um, right. So I thought they handled her very well. And again, she was hidden under a horrendous amount of um, prosthetics and makeup. So I can only imagine that was hell for her to film. Right. I think everybody, yeah, for the most part, though, everything. Uh, Bruce Davison was had the sort of sliminess that you need for a politician. Um, yeah, I think it was mainly just Rogue, um, Sabretooth, and for me, Bobby, kind of were the were the lower points of the cast. As for the rest of them, I thought they were either all excellent or at least very decent. Yeah, and I like both portrayals of Mystique. You know, you kind of touched on it. She's she's a little bit more of a mysterious character in this movie than she has been in, you know, the recent mm-hmm. iterations of X-Men, but I like both what Jennifer Lawrence has done, uh, with the exception of, uh, just apocalypse. Cause it literally, that movie was an apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't, that, that's probably the only X-Men movie, uh, other than, uh, you know, the third one in this kind of trilogy that I just, I don't, understand why it was even made <laughs> i mean i don't think jennifer lawrence realized why she was even in it no but well that's the thing you look at what she did with you know x-men first class and you know X, even x-men days of future past and i liked both of those movies and i like mm. her in both of those movies but i think it's just two very different distinct you know takes on the character of mystique and i like both i'd actually forgotten not recently but in years gone by i'd actually forgotten she was in those films because obviously she's gone on, she's obviously this is the Hunger Games, and at the time she's also doing the X Men films. I'd forgotten that she was Mystique, uh, because she then went on to do these very dramatic roles. Whether you like them or not, I tend to think she's a bloody brilliant actress when she really shows up. But I'd I forgotten do. she was in the X Men films. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's just two very different, you know, yeah. uh, takes on the character. Another thing, probably the <laughs> the only cheesy thing I found in X Men were these sound effects, uh, specifically towards the end. You know, when we're starting to get in some of the fight scenes and whatnot, those were ripped right out of like a '70s or '80s martial arts <laughs> film for me, and that seemed like a little cheesy for the time. Uh, however, everything else I thought was done exceptionally well. Yeah, I, I agree. I hadn't, I hadn't noticed the sound effects. So I now want to go back and check them out. You should. Um, I'm going to go back and check them out and see what I think about it. One of the only bits of writing I thought was strained was when they were mentioning that Rogue was going to stay. She could either stay on and be a teacher, or Rogue, who was clearly a female, could stay on and be an X-Men. I thought, oh, that job jacks a bit. It doesn't seem right. I know they're, they're called the X-Men, but when they were specifically talking about a female character as an X-Men... Mm-hmm. Like this kind of jarred, not in any kind of bigger bigger way than than that. It just kind of just sounded odd to sit to sort of hear them say it and see it on screen. I thought that jarred slightly, but yeah, not in any other kind of political way. It just sound, sound, looked and sounded quite strange. But I thought it was written fairly well for the film. They had some exposition dumps during it, and some bits of the dialogue were a bit clunky uh, mm-hmm. towards the end when Magneto says to Sabretooth, "Your favorite," when he says, uh, "When." Once I have transferred my powers, I will be temporarily weakened. You think, well, thanks, thanks for that setup or that kind of, you know, <laughs> very clunky bit of dialogue. There, couldn't have really just showed it. Exactly, yeah. You just have to tell us. By the way, once this happens, I'm going to be there for the taking, guys. Uh, so there were some di- bits of dialogue which were a bit, but for the most part, I thought it was 
handled quite well. Mm-hmm. On a final note for me, you know, after, you know, Brian Singer didn't want to even do the film. It took him, I think, three or four times before that mm-hmm. he finally accepted it. Uh, so for a film that went through so much pre-production troubles, I think the final product turned out quite well. Yeah, I I agree. See, considering it's, it started what nineteen eighty four, and I know that the, the the script would have been rewritten and destroyed and started again many times during that. But for a film which started, you know, almost two decades before that, it I think to bring it to the screen in the way that they did, because I think they could have they could have potentially you know made it even bigger, even flashier, even more explosive with the action and more superheroes and even pandered more to the the orders by having them in their traditional costumes but i thought the way that it was handled and kind of made with sort of with how christopher nolan handled the batman series like sort of kind of kept it on a grounded level not all the time obviously because because they're mutants but there was that kind of sort of i hate the word gritty but there was that kind of gritty feel to it where it didn't feel particularly out of this world and it felt like it was happening in New York and not some strange far-off planet. I agree. So, the the million-dollar question, and I'm a gentleman, I'm from England, so why wouldn't I be? The million-dollar question, X-Men, the very first film of the franchise and what kicked off the revitalised the superhero genre. Does it get a thumbs-up from you, or is it are we, uh, an avoid this at all costs? It is a definite, without question, thumbs up for me. If you are even moderately thinking about watching X-Men again, I suggest do it. Yep, I watched the film very recently, and I liked it more than I did when I first saw it. And that's not because my tastes have changed or I I, I dive into these kind of things with a one-track mind. But I enjoyed it a lot more than I, I remember enjoying it before, so... If you haven't seen it for a long time, check it out. You may be surprised. If you haven't seen it at all, I too recommend it. Uh, it was it was more entertaining and enjoyable than I remember it being. Um, so, the and on a fun note, the last film we reviewed together was Batman Returns. Uh, we both also recommended that with a few caveats and asterisks attached to it. So, for, for, for me, I'm going to put X-Men ahead of Batman Returns from the two films we've seen in terms of what I took from it, how I felt at the end of it, and basically did I enjoy it more. I did, so I'm putting X-Men above Batman Returns. What are you thinking? I am actually going to follow suit with you, um, and I'm going to put it ahead of Batman Returns. That's not to you know discredit Batman Returns for what it is or anything, but just as as what, what I gained from watching it. Uh, I gained more out of X-Men than I did Batman Returns. Yep, I had a better time, and again, that's not to the negative of Batman Returns because that was a fine film in its own merits. But I just did, I got more engaged in this film. It was it, it was more fun. The action scenes were better, and I thought the performances. Uh, I think actually, to be fair, the, the two films have, both have fantastic performances. But yep, I'm putting X Men above above Batman Returns. So. I mean, that's X-Men from us, so it's a recommendation for us. I hope you guys enjoyed what we spoke about, and if we've missed anything, you know, get in contact with one of us. Tell us how wrong we are. Tell us how right we are. <laughs> Is there anything you guys enjoyed more than we did? Is there anything you didn't like? Did you like Anna Paquin? Did you like uh, Sabretooth? Did you dislike Hugh Jackman? Whatever. Let us know. Um, but was there anything else you had about X-Men to throw in, Jared? I am. I am all good. 
I, I believe I'm beat as well. So on that then, I think that brings the episode to a close. Um, I think, I hope you agree, it's been, a, it's been a fun episode. I've enjoyed going back to revisit the film that started it all off and uh, I've enjoyed talking about it this month. Yes, uh, both in both cases, both with Batman Returns and with X-Men, I thought, you know, talking about the film uh, kind of helps me, you know, uh, kind of get a sense for where we are in comic book movies at the moment. And so it's kind of always fun to do these throwbacks. Absolutely. And uh, when we do get around to doing some modern films, it will be fun to kind of see how they fare up because I don't, we, we're, we're not going to spend every episode fully comparing what we've seen before, but we will kind of compare it for you know, two, three minutes to what we have seen before. So, um, so like I said, that is that for this episode of Comic Casts. Thank you so much for giving your time once again for the awesome content, the brilliant insight, uh, and just a great chat, Jared. So thank you so much. Where can the lovely listeners find you on the internet? So you can find the Borough Reviews at theboroughreviews.com, and then we are also on Facebook and Instagram at the Borough Reviews, and on Twitter at Borough Reviews. Go check out the Borough Reviews. Their reviews are superb. They're insightful, and I tend to agree with more often than not. Uh, also, check out their YouTube channel as well because it's an awful lot of fun. Plus, they have owl hoodies, so go and buy some. Um, you could you could find me if you really want to at whatiwatchtonight.co.uk. Uh, also on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd as well, which is just reviews only. Uh, these episodes, this one you're listening to right now, you'll either be listening to on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, tune in stitcher pod knife pretty much anywhere you can hear a podcast we are on it so i hope you enjoyed it if you do tell people tell fellow comic book fans tell movie fans you know it's nothing better than sharing something you've heard which is good if you don't like it probably don't tell anyone it's better for everybody if you don't so we'll be back in the month's time but until then from me it's going to be see ya and from this guy i'll be back thank you guys catch you soon see ya 